Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the chief. U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. Today, I'm joined once again by Erica Edelberg. She is our mortgage strategist for BI. Erica, thanks very much for coming back on FIC Focus. Thanks for having me, Ira. So before we talk about the mortgage market, I have to say something about the Federal Reserve's December meeting. Um, there was definitely a going into the meeting, people thought that maybe he, uh, Jay Powell was going to reiterate some of the more dovish comments that he had made back in December, uh, excuse me, November at the Brookings Institution. One of the things that um, I think people had, had been missing is the Fed is still in inflation fighting mode. And although, uh, you know, even our natural language processing model suggested that Jay Powell was pretty dovish back in, uh, b- back in late November, um, the, the, the Fed is still worried that inflation is going to remain high, that inflation expectations are going to become embedded. So they're going to live up to their promises and hike interest rates to around 5%. Now, what was really interesting and one of the discussion points going into the meeting was about the dreaded dot plot. And would the dots be higher than they were um, since after the uh, September meeting? Jay Powell had already told us they would be higher. The question was how much higher. And then there was the second question of could they be revised? So once members of the FOMC saw the um, uh, saw the CPI report on Tuesday for November, which came in better than expected, meaning lower than expected, there was question as to whether or not some members of the FOMC might revise their dots. And they could have revised their dots because, uh, you know, I have it on uh, reliable sources have have uh, informed me that, that the FOMC members can uh, change their dots up until the end of the day on Tuesday before the meeting. So basically, I guess uh, some, some staff at the Federal Reserve Board down at the Eccles Building, when they put together the dot plot and all of the rest of the summary of economic projections, they go out and, and uh, um, they need to do that or maybe over overnight or first thing in the morning on, on Wednesday as the meeting uh, continues and, and the Federal Reserve makes its policy decisions. So the Federal Reserve did, in fact, hike only 50 basis points after hiking a number of times, about four times at 75 basis point clips. The next meeting, I think, will be 25 basis points. That's our expectation. It's not out of the question that they'll go 50, but I think more than likely they'll go in 25 basis point increments going forward because they are in calibration mode. And realistically, it doesn't matter if the Fed hikes to 5% or 5.25% in terms of the upper bound of their target range. I don't think it really does for the long-term economy, but the Fed still wants to have the optionality maybe to signal that they're going to remain reasonably hawkish. And in particular, um, Jay Powell once again, which he had, has been saying this since July, but the market still doesn't believe him, that once they reach the terminal rate, the Fed wants to keep the rate there at the upper bound for longer than they have during previous cycles. Now, interestingly, the market doesn't think so. The market continues to price for interest rate cuts in the uh, fourth quarter of next year. 
And and one of the big implications for that, I think, for for the Treasury market in particular and short-term interest rates is that if the market starts to believe that the Fed is going to leave interest rates at that peak for longer, that means that two-year yields in particular, in, uh, if you're looking just at the normal uh, coupon treasuries, two-year yields are about 25 to, to 30 basis points too low. So there could be a very significant uptick in the two-year yield, and I think that that, mean, that means for a somewhat flatter curve. Longer end of the curve, I don't think it has much much meaning really. Um, you know, would it sell off a little bit if, if the Fed were to hike to say five and a quarter, which isn't being priced yet in the market? The answer is yes, but it would be like five or ten basis points. Meanwhile, the front end is going to have a much higher beta to, uh, to to ultimately the Fed funds rate, which is not a huge surprise. Um, still think that next year we'll have reasonably decent returns for the Treasury market. We talked about that on last week's podcast when we talked about our returns for the aggregate index. So, but it needed we needed to say something and kind of set the stage here because one of the most important uh, parts of of the financial market and and that feeds into the real economy is the housing market and the housing market is driven in large part by not only the availability of credit but the price of credit and the uh, the price of mortgages and um, and and households to get mortgages. So, I, I want to dig really deep into and get a little wonky here in, in how the mortgage-backed securities market actually works. So, Erica, I know I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit because I literally asked you 15 minutes before we started to record if you could record with me today. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about mortgages. So, I'm about to refinance my mortgage because I – well, variety of reasons, but I'm, I'm going to be refinancing my mortgage. When I refinance my mortgage, I go to I'm going through my local bank. I'm filling out all the forms, giving them all my you know 1040 uh, you know tax returns and 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 the like. What is then the next process since I'm going to have a conforming mortgage, thanks to the new mortgage rules that you have talked about quite a lot. You know the larger loan limits and and things like that for conforming mortgages. What then is the next step? What's the process for my mortgage to end up in a mortgage-backed pool? Um, okay, so yeah, most so it depends on the type of mortgage you have. Sometimes the banks just take these onto their balance sheets, and that depends on the type of mortgage. Like perhaps you ha- you had an adjustable rate mortgage before. That's sometimes a good asset for banks to keep on their balance sheets because it actually fits nicely with their liability structure, and they actually prefer jumbos with high credit because they don't have any credit concerns. Easy to service. In the case, if you're going into a fixed-rate um, conforming balance loan, they may not want that longer loan on their books forever. They may want to take that cash, and they may want to make a new loan. and Or they may even want to get it guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie, because you're, you know, who knows about your credit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I would be very suspect about my own credit. So yeah. it's a good thing they're doing their due diligence. Exactly. So they may want to get it, you know, pay a little fee to get it guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie and then purchase it back. But more likely, they'll probably deliver it into the mortgage backed securities market. There's also a huge slew, I'd say almost 80% of um, Fannie and Freddie loans now and 95% of Ginnie Mae loans now are actually originated and often serviced by non bank lenders. That's been a huge change since the financial crisis. And really since 2013. So the rockets of the world, for instance, and they almost never, in fact, they, they, they may have a small investment portfolio. I'm not sure, but that's not their thing. 
they actually almost always securitize their loans and sell them out to investors. And so then, then we rely so, so on the investor base. So so let's go through that a little bit. So so there's a servicer. So let's say Rocket Mortgage or one of the other um, servicers. So so they basically are just a pass-through entity. They, they'll, they'll underwrite the loan using the standards that Fannie and Freddie or whoever – you know, I guess the FHFA ultimately sets those standards, um, which is the the what is the FHFA? Federal Housing Finance Authority. Right, which is basically the merger of two different authorities that that used to manage one that used to regulate Fannie and Freddie, the other one used to um, manage uh, uh, Fannie Mae, uh, excuse me, Ginnie Mae, and they they've actually merged that, so it's now one. One more. Actually, is the, that, the is federal, that like, no, the federal housing, the FHA still exists separately. Oh, does it? So okay. yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So, so yeah. Um, and I, one of them might be agency, one of them might be authority. You can, you know, fact check <laughs> anyway, me on that one. The, the FHFA sets these rules. Um, oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not thinking about Jenny May. I'm thinking about the uh, federal home loan banking system. Oh, okay. So Got th- it. there you go. So anyway, it's now on under the FHFA. So so we we have these underwriting rules. So so you know. Rocket Mortgage, whomever, you, you fill out the paperwork, they underwrite and they say, yes, you conform to this th- this loan. Um, that loan then ends up in some – gets packaged with other loans of – With similar coupons and the same maturity, 30 years or 15 years. Okay. Right. And then um, – but, but, but presumably there's also different credit profiles of the underlying borrowers right so based on perhaps fico score how to you know when in determining credit let's let's d- just use fico because people i think know what that is you know in, in terms of consumer credit um, reliability so so there there's also a range of those credit scores that uh, or of those credit errors right so that so the people with mortgages that that are in those pools, right? Yep. So if there's a, a hundred loans in those pools, there's some distribution of the credit quality of the of the borrowers, right? Right, and the information is available on the monthly factor tapes as to what the distribution for any given pool is, and those pools are actually aggregated up into um, what they call a to be announced or a TBA security, usually, um, or generic is really the term until it's uh, delivered. And so we make assumptions about what that generic looks like or what that to-be-announced TBA security looks like based on what we know, all the pools and loans that have gone into. You can look at it on a pool level or granular level using functions on the terminal like CPR Go, which are awesome for slicing and dicing. And in this case, um, although CPR in this case stands for collateral performance research or something like that, um, CPR normally is conditional prepayment rate. So they're they're playing games with what that's about, which probably confuses some uh, users. <laughs> but in any case, CPR Go is the function on the terminal where you can really slice and dice for any given coupon generic, which has a range of homeowner rates, but they're close to that rate, but minus the servicing and the GSE fees. Anyway, they package those in together, let's say, into a Fanny 2 or, or a Fanny 5. And you know, generally speaking, those will have similar characteristics for that group. But we also have, and actually we're breaking them out now in the mortgage index, which is really interesting, a huge specified pool breakdown. So even being priced in the mortgage index, you can now buy loans that are a max loan size of 150000 which is going to behave very differently from a loan with a max loan size of the new you know, 750000 So I do want to get into specified pools a little later, but let, let's let's – Still take it a little bit more granular. So, so let's talk about a typical, like, say, these days. I guess it would be like a a, a UMBS, which is a universal mortgage-backed security, which is Fannie and Freddie back loans together, right? Um, in, in effect, um, the so so we end up having 
uh, my loan today, right? So if I'm getting, you know, I'm I'm going to wind up settling probably in February, right? And at, at this point, you know, thanks to the Christmas break or something like that, right? Maybe late January, but probably February. So the rate that they're going to quote me today is going to be based perhaps on, you know, this 60-day lock period, right? Um, and and that is based on the the TBA market that you just said. So 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 that to be announced market where my loan is going to end up in in something that settles in February. Um, so what happens and and presumably because because the TBA market are effectively mortgage forwards, what happens if there's say more people getting loans than there are TBAs outstanding, right? Or or people willing to take delivery into into TBAs? Is, is there has there ever been a time that that's happened? Or I mean, it's usually the other way, right? But but I want to talk about like the risk case here. So so if there is like a huge a huge housing boom and and you know the mortgage the, the mortgage forwards don't really exist, you know what what happens to those excess loans? Is that they end up in just specified pools that get sold to someone or no? They, they still end up in TBAs. TBAs, but you know they they probably will be everything ends up actually being kind of traded on a conceptual basis in the TBA market, which is ninety percent of the trading. So it doesn't really matter what loans are out are kind of outstanding at any given time. I mean, at some point somebody has to take them in, probably, but in general they just get um, put into almost a theoretical collection of, of pools that you are getting delivered, but you don't necessarily get them delivered. You just, you know, even if you're selling things, you, you just take what you got in on that settlement date from somebody else, quickly turn it around using all your sophisticated computer programs <laughs> and move those theoretical pools, but you never actually take possession of them. Right. So there's a very um, efficient way for pools to get pushed forward and backwards in time and to try to, you know, catch up with the volume. But one of the things that, you know, we're alighting here is the fact that for the you know 15 years before 2008 and the 15 years after 2008 we've had huge buyers of any kind of excess we've had the GSEs picking up a lot of the slack in the um, in the uh, you know pre-financial crisis era and the Federal Reserve picking up the slack in the post-financial crisis era and then you also had um, and I think this may be part of what you're getting to we had dealers who served as intermediaries in there as well and they have been much less of an intermediary now, and the Fed obviously isn't buying, and the bank isn't just kind of buying as a, you know, pro forma thing because their deposits are down. So the dealers sometimes have to take up a little bit of the slack, and they're very, very small right now. So I think that's one of the things that's creating a lot of the return volatility on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and this is, you know, just even relating to what we know exists in the forward market, and therefore what they took in from originators, even if it's not necessarily settling yet. So I think that's one of the reasons we are, you know, if we have a $3 billion day when we're used to a $1 billion day, you know, there's a little bit of a hiccup. I'm um, sorry, the 30, you know, 30 billion and whatever. <laughs> the, well, it's day, but it's actually it's $3 billion versus $1 billion day. So, yeah, so I think there's a little bit of a hiccup on those days. And that's one of the reasons that spreads have sometimes widened more than we expect on a given day. Let's talk about if you hold a TBA. So you you hold this this forward. So so at the end of the at the maturity or nearing the maturity, you kind of have two options, right? You can either roll that TBA right to the next month or some future month, um, and 
uh, or you can take delivery of the securities and, and become or take uh, of the loans and and it turns into a pass through security. So I've actually done that in the past in my personal account, just for full disclosure that I did that during the uh, financial crisis. So it was a good trade in the end. Um, although it was significantly less liquid to be able to, <laughs> to trade the pass through versus the TBA. Getting a quote on that was uh, was a little trickier when I finally wanted to get out. But 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 talk about the role market. Like how active and how important is the role market? So so going from say a January TBA to a February TBA and trading that role. Like why do people trade that that role and and what's the um, kind of the economics of it? Well, it's interesting. So I uh, I managed mortgages for a very long time, and certainly my first five years or so of managing mortgages was all pass through trading. And at that time, specified pools were dating myself, but specified pools weren't even that big a thing. Occasionally, we'd buy some super high season Ginny Mays or something. But in general, because you wanted to be able to make sector decisions based on whether or not you wanted to be in or out of the mortgage market, you wanted to make security selection, but it was more like, do you want to own a Fannie Five or a 15-year two? Um, there were no 15-year twos back then. Uh, <laughs> a Fannie 5 or a 15-year 4. Um, you would you know, want to keep things in TBA form because otherwise you would have to go through that whole messy process of going through your own inventory, trying to pull up no more than three pools per million you know, into your million dollar, each million that you delivered. So the, the easiest way to make quick trades was always through the TBA market. And that's why 90% of the market does trade as TBA form. Um, there are buy and hold investors who will just buy it and hold it. A lot of those, but I think for, you know, for most active money managers, it's all done in TBA form. So you kind of don't really have a choice unless it's very uneconomical to just keep dollar rolling it out. And that happens. What you say is, you know, buy two days before settlement date, which is the middle of each month. You would um, make sure you would have sold whatever TBA positions you had, and you would have bought them back in the next month. Normally, that's a dollar roll drop. Normally, because you're giving up principal and interest. You let's say you know buy it at ninety nine fourteen, sell it at ninety nine fourteen, buy it back the next month at ninety nine ten or whatever it is, um, and it, you're being compensated for both the um, giving the dealers liquidity effectively um, by and by you know dollar rolling it forward, making it life smoother for everybody, and you're also just being compensated for the principal and interest. The interesting thing is that because there are probably more uh, available bonds right now without the Fed buying. The dollar roll market is not trading special at all. So your financing basically is at best equal to what you'd put get in a bank, you know, for the Fed funds, four and, <laughs> right. four and three quarters. Um, we, you know, we used to compare it to LIBOR, I guess it'd be kind of so for now. But then the other interesting thing is because the carry on deep discounts like Fannie Twos is actually less than four and a half percent in some cases because of the shape of the curve. Um, you know, because the the longer end uh, the the yields on longer securities is lower right now in some cases. Um, the dollar roll is actually trading in reverse, which is really it really plays with my head. Like you actually, you know, you'd sell welcome, it at welcome ninety. To the, welcome to the most inverted we've been since the early eighties. Exactly, you'd sell it at ninety. The buck you'd have to buy it back at ninety three. Who wants to do that? You right. know, ninety three yeah. thirty seconds. So it really kind of messes you up. But that's again where specified pools can come in because some of the specified pools are prepaying a little bit faster on deep discounts, and they can actually give you a little bit of incremental carry. Maybe worth taking in that TBA or at least that specified pool cohort. 
and seeing if you can get a little bit better than what you would get just by dollar rolling your TBAs and those deep discounts. Interesting. So uh, two more things that I want to talk about. One is the intersection with the rates market. So um, we always talk about in, in the rates market that toward the end of the month, the 20th to 25th of the month, Fannie and Freddie seem to have additional cash on their balance sheet. And, and then I guess that gets paid out to the TBA holders or the pass-through holders, uh, not TBA holders because because those are uh, but but to the to the pass through holders is uh, you know is that is that an i guess a, a normal occurrence in that you um meaning that the size so so does, does that size change regularly like of of how much cash gets paid out like what's the right now it seems like that cash maybe is a little bit lower yeah uh you just made the hand gesture for yeah. <laughs> for, for lower we're actually in studio uh re- recording together here at, at 731 lex so it's it's nice to see eric in person um it's, so, it, so it, you know that that obviously is very low because uh, presumably because um, pay downs. Pay downs. There's are no low. refinancing. No yeah. refinancing. Yeah, so I'm exactly. I'm going to be one of like the three people who refinance in December probably. That's yeah, probably. <laughs> and you refinance from an adjustable rate, so I don't even know if anybody will notice. But <laughs> it's not in the mortgage index, but right. but yeah, like pay downs are super low, which is also you know coherent to the uh, you know corresponding to that is the fact that the Fed's runoff is super slow. So like they think the run- Fed runoff. Is going to see about sixteen billion uh, this month, and that's it. That's that's what you right. Know. And they, and they they can go up to thirty five billion. Yeah. But, so it's basically half of what their what what their mortgage runoff is. And then meanwhile, on the treasury side, remember they are running off sixty billion dollars a month. It's just about how much runoff they they run off with T bills or or not. Um, they, they make up for the extra with that that very short term security. Yeah. So that Fannie Fannie Freddie money is money that they took in from. You know, basically, they're processing through the whole processing servicer thing that they took in from people who are paying down their mortgages or refinancing their mortgages. That then gets paid out to the note holder on the twenty fifth, which is why their repo goes down. That's the gotcha. payment date. So, and then, so last question. You brought this up before, and I think this is really important. So, the the mortgage index now, the Bloomberg mortgage index. So, so now in the ag will be these specified pools. Um, you know, specified pools are, are something that I didn't even know existed until right around the financial crisis. And and now, of course, it's th- similar to like LIBOR OES. Nobody knew what LIBOR OES was except for nerds like me before the, fi- the financial crisis. Do you think that that's going to have a significant effect on liquidity in those products, the fact that they're going to be in the index? Or um, do you think it might actually be a problem because now more people in order to become index weight will have to just own more of these specified pools, and that might actually decrease liquidity. So I, I can see arguments both ways. So do, do you have an opinion on on whether or not index inclusion will help the spec pools or not? That's an interesting question. Honestly, if I were to uh, put money in it, I would say it would probably help the liquidity of those lower, uh, I'm sorry, the specified pools. And I think the reason for that is because they were already being traded, but at this point, they're actually being priced appropriately in the index. So you're not going to be taking some sort of penalty where you buy something that looks like a 150k max loan at you know a pay up of 24 ticks, but you are questionable about where the price is when you get that priced by a dealer or a pricing service at month end. So and, and not only that, but the index will also be taking into account changes in those prices. It takes away a little bit of an alpha from some of the people who might be trying to <laughs> outperform the market and game where they think that payup should be and where that payup's going. Uh, but I think on the whole, it'll probably encourage more people to perhaps take them in. Um, 
and I don't really think it will hurt the liquidity. I mean, there's, there's already trading in that. So if anything, I think it just increases, greases the wheels a little bit. And I think, honestly, a lot of passive investors who are trying to replicate the index, they can't own and tr don't try to own everything. In this case, I just don't think they're going to be able to own every single cohort. So they, they might you know own something that's a, proximity, a proxy for that. For instance, they might own loan balance in Fannie 2 and a halves, but not in Fannie 2s or, you know. Yeah, right. So it won't be a full replication scenario. It'll be it, it'll be some kind of approximate uh, replication. Of That's what I'm guessing. I haven't actually talked to them, but yeah. I, I can only imagine that <laughs> it's going to be hard to pull out some of those cohorts. So. Right. Great. Well, that's been Erica Edelberg. Erica, thanks for coming back on Fig Focus two weeks Thank in a you. row. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks yeah. a lot. Great. And with that, if you have any, uh, any guests you'd like us to have on or any topics you'd like us to hit, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, I, uh, with that, be well.